This morning, I'm, I'm privileged to introduce to you someone who may not be a stranger to some of you, and I know he spoke here at TCC at the, uh, the end of January when all of the staff were away at a conference. Um, Pastor Ken is uh, just finishing up his vacation and will be back this week. Um, but Terry Fossum is uh, no stranger to many in Edmonton. He, uh, he was actually my pastor when I served at Central Baptist And I had to use a calculator to figure out it was 27 years ago. So I think that makes both of us old, you just a little older than me. Um, But uh, Terry uh, served there at Central Baptist as a youth pastor, um, and then as the senior pastor, left and served at Taylor College as a professor, and then the church, like six years later, called him back to be the senior pastor again. And, uh, and uh, was well-loved and is respected highly in all of the, the circles that we, that we uh, um, are in together. And it's because of just his humble heart, his contagious love for Jesus. And, uh, and we're going to be blessed this morning as Terry comes and shares the word this morning. He'll be um, sharing from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And I know he'll be reading that during the start of his message. But if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to, uh, to open them now. Terry, welcome. Thanks. We're thrilled that you're here. Thanks, brother. Thank you. And let's look at a powerful portion of Scripture in Matthew chapter 15. The word of the Lord as it's recorded about our Lord. It was as if I didn't exist. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. The atmosphere between Jews and Gentiles was never warm. In fact, tense would best describe the typical interaction between the people of God and the rest of us. But I suppose I had grown hopeful. The reputation of the the stranger had preceded him, and all of the reports seemed consistent. Finally, a leader with more than power. Finally, a leader who cared, who really cared, who had time for even the common folk, who attended real issues, who put people before his own reputation. Finally, a teacher who lived up to what he professed, Finally, someone who did something that mattered, who actually made a difference, whose very presence seemed to breathe life into despair. So you can see why I was hopeful. When I heard that the stranger was passing by, hope surged within me, and you can understand why I pushed my way that day through the crowds, past the cultural protocol, in spite of the searing glances and discriminatory slurs and degrading threats, you can see why I stretched beyond my futile desperation. If there was a God, I wanted him to be like that stranger. I wanted him to deal with my situation. I wanted him to help my daughter, my tormented daughter. I wanted him to set my little girl free. So when I saw the stranger, it was as if I lost myself. It was like years of pent-up fear and pain exploded from within me. 
I ran over to where he was and fell at his feet and began crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I was making a spectacle of myself. Everyone was staring at me, but I hardly noticed. This was my only chance. I knew that this stranger could help, yet he didn't say a word to me. He didn't even acknowledge me. It, it was like I didn't exist. But I didn't care. I just kept crying out over and over and over again, Have mercy on me, O oh Lord, Son of David. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I knew I was irritating his followers. I repeatedly heard them saying, Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. Finally, the stranger broke his silence. He turned to his followers and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, my heart sank. Of course he had to say that. He was a Jew. I was a Gentile, a Canaanite. A woman, a, a, a female Gentile, Canaanite, a nobody. But there was still something about him. It was like, like God was standing there with him, with us. I just couldn't give up. Once more, I fell at his feet. I worshipped him. At the same time, I begged him, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Still, the stranger did not acknowledge me. Instead, he spoke about me. Everyone was listening when he said, it's not proper to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. His words seemed to thrust a knife in my soul. I couldn't contain myself any longer. Hoarse from all my pleading, I squeaked out the only thing I could think of. Yes, Lord, but even dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from the master's table. An uneasy silence shattered the growing tension. I had pushed too hard. I had offended the stranger. I lost my chance. My daughter would forever pay for my impertinence. Barely able to see through my tears, I looked up, straining to catch a glimpse of his reaction. As his face came into focus, I searched for the posture of his heart, and it was then that his eyes met mine, and I discovered the compassion that engulfed his reputation, and my heart surged with hopeful anticipation I struggled for composure, trying to formulate my thoughts, but before I could find the words, the stranger spoke. With a knowing smile, he said, Woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And in an instant, my daughter was set free. And I, I was transformed. But as the stranger turned to walk away, the hushed expressions on the faces of his followers said to me that mine was not the only life changed that day. This dramatic account of Jesus' unusual encounter with the Syrophoenician woman recorded in Matthew chapter 15 is an inspiring story of faith and hope and love, revealing to us the unbelievable faith 
of a woman, the unexpressed hope of the nations, and the unfettered love of God. But this biblical narrative also reveals to us that as much as Jesus can be inspiring, he can also be disturbing. Because we see Jesus seemingly out of character in this account. We see Jesus, this very Jesus, who we celebrate as the compassionate friend, the the gentle shepherd, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This very Jesus as the same Jesus who in this pathetic account of a mother crying for the deliverance of her demonized daughter seems not only insensitive, but downright rude to this Gentile, this Canaanite woman. We discover in Matthew 15, 23, that Jesus' first response to this desperate mother was to ignore her. He did not answer her a word. As this Canaanite woman tenaciously persisted on behalf of her daughter to the point where Jesus' disciples repeatedly asked him to somehow just deal with her already, send her away or something to help her do something, just shut her up. Yet Jesus seems relationally cold, maybe even callous, speaking to his disciples along some kind of religious theological framework, saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even when this Gentile uncharacteristically throws herself at his feet to worship him, it says in the scriptures, worship him crying, Lord, help me. Jesus only continues to talk about her even seemingly to go as far as to verbally abuse her, saying to the audience, it's not proper to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's needless to say, highly discomforting to see Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Friend of Sinners, this this man for others, operating along what appears to be a discriminatory, bigoted, even cruel relational plane. In fact, reading between the lines, it appears that even Jesus' disciples winced at the extent of his love, lack of love and his low esteem to this desperate soul, even though she was a Gentile after all. So what was going on with Jesus? Are we simply seeing a side of him that we haven't really noticed before? Was he just tired, having one of those proverbial bad days, pressed to the edge of reasonable demand, constantly in a face, attempting to establish some personal boundaries to preserve his own sanity? Is that what's going on? Perhaps he was testing this woman, this foreigner, about the legitimacy of her request, of her faith, trying to discern if she was sincere or merely just another opportunist seeking to extract something from him. Or was Jesus doing something else? Was he maybe purposefully creating a disturbance, rattling some cages? You know, he had a way of doing that. He's done that in my life. It seems that wherever 
Jesus went, people were challenged, and that transformation was imminent, that things changed wherever he went. It seems that the creator, the recreator in Jesus was always at work. So when he encountered this Canaanite in need, it appears that Jesus was determined to deliver more than this woman's tormented daughter. It becomes apparent that he also wanted to set his own followers free. When we examine the interaction between Jesus and the Canaanite, we discover that first, Jesus exposed the lie. Specifically, the lie that difference means distance. Let me say that again. The lie that difference means distance. I hardly need to point out that in this world, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment still exists, really, everywhere. Even as we speak, if you were to visit the Middle East, <laughs> other, other parts of the world too, but in the Middle East in particular, maybe even to the very heart of Israel, Jews and Palestinians grow ever more hostile towards one another, right? From long before Israel ever became a nation, even under the leadership of Moses, anti-Semitism has been a reality that the Hebrew people have had to contend with and the ongoing reality of struggle and persecution at the hands of the Gentiles also created an ongoing reaction among the Jewish people, the people of God, a, a predictable defensiveness among these people of God, an anti-anti-Semitism sentiment towards outsiders among the jewish people the response of of this and to this anti-semitism has historically led to an inevitable bias and prejudice against gentiles among the people of god a seemingly insurmountable distance between jews and gentiles and things were no different in jesus day in in so many ways the Jewish-Gentile barrier was accentuated two millennia ago, fed by a growing Jewish nationalism and, and exacerbated by a formidable, ruthless Gentile-Roman authority. It was a painful, tragic way to coexist. Yet Jews and Gentiles alike seemed to have understood the system. And to a large extent, they had grown to accept the reality of distance because of difference. Yet Jesus never regarded any distant or broken or strained relationships as acceptable. Never. So he was moved to disturb the status quo as he purposed to provoke a dividing prejudice on that day when this woman encountered him. In fine poetic form, Jesus hyperbolized this dramatic account. He drew attention to the distance which was permeating this Jewish-Gentile struggle by throwing fuel on that smoldering tension, totally ignoring the Canaanite woman's pleas refusing to even address her, much less deal with her, and then insulting her in spite of her desperation. And you know, it wasn't long before that routine 
difference took on the look of, di- of ridiculous. It wasn't long before the prejudice looked pathetic. It wasn't long before that distance looked disgusting. And it always is disgusting, that is. Even though it's not always intentional. Distance has a way of, of insidiously seeping into our lives like like groundwater into the crack of the basement. Oh, I know what that's like. Distance is based on unsubstantiated assumptions about other people which seep into our consciousness, our understanding, and lead us to regard someone else as other, as weird, as different, And before long, these assumptions can pollute the basis of our relational convictions and serve to compromise the very foundations of our faith. Distance is seldom evident in overt acts of unkindness or cruelty. Most often, distance is detected in the relationships which we just neglect or avoid. And most tragically, It permits untold stories. Stories that should be told but never happen. Distance denies stories of relationships which never were because of assumptions made. Sometimes we, and I use the word we so advisedly, we make assumptions about someone who is racially different. And that creates relational distance. Sometimes we make assumptions about someone who is economically different, and that creates relational distance. Sometimes we make assumptions about someone who is intellectually, educationally different, and that creates relational distance. Sometimes we make assumptions about someone who is religiously different, and that creates relational distance. Sometimes we make assumptions about someone who is physically or culturally different, and that creates relational distance. Pastor Norb indicated that I'm about as old as dirt. Well, that's true, you know. I came to pastor at, in Edmonton in 1980 at Central Baptist Church, right out of seminary, nine months married, right out of seminary, ready to take on the world, really. And uh, two master's degrees. You know, I showed up at Central as the youth pastor. And I had all kinds of plans, and that went really good for about six months. And then I found myself going, oh, Lord, I have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> One of these days they're going to find out who I am, and they're going to say, get rid of that guy. You know, that's what, they, you know, that's what was going through my head. And I found myself about six months into pastoring as a youth pastor, asking the Lord on my knees, saying, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And as... I was praying for a few days. One day, into my little corner office at the church, I heard this knock on my door. And I opened the door, and there stood three young men from the youth group looking at me. Now, I come from rural Alberta. I'm 
as I've mentioned here once before, Alberta beef, you know, I mean, just for the record, you know. I, I grew up in the grand metropolis of carbon, you know, I mean, and uh, I mean, I grew up, you know, with my top button buttoned, I mean, and, you know, you, you always have your hair with brill cream, and I'm sure nobody knows what that is anymore, unless you are way older than dirt. Anyway, I wore cowboy boots. I drove a 1968 Ford Hafton when I came to the center. You know, I mean, I mean, I was, I'm redneck as they come, you know, and open the door, and here's these three guys, one of them. He's got hair down to here, looking at me, you know. The other guy's got longer hair, looking at me, jeans, you know, a little couple holes in the jeans. And the other guy is trimmed a little bit better, but kind of really looking out of it. And I'm saying, okay, come on in. And, and these three guys came into my office, and they sat down, and they said, Pastor Terry, our lives are a mess. We need to get our lives right with the Lord. You know, I mean, I, yes, of course. You know, I mean, so let's pray. You know, I mean, we, we I mean, so we, we all got down on our knees and we prayed. And, and after we prayed and they put their lives in order, you know, we talked and they said, you know what we'd like to do? We'd like to come every day to your office and pray for the young people of this church until the Lord transforms it. And they did. And the Lord did. The Lord transformed the youth. And I, I still go, oh, I have no idea how he did that, but I'm glad I was part along for the ride. I was really glad to be there without it happening. I had made assumptions about these three young men that they were, they, were, they were on the edge of marginally some distant. They looked different. They acted different. They were from another culture. They were from another world as far as I was concerned. And, and they were not the ones I was trying to relate to. And they were the ones the Lord chose to work and transform the lives of the whole youth group. <laughs> One of them is a medical engineer today raising a godly family. Another is a me an engineer raising a family. Another one's a medical doctor working in missions in northern BC raising a godly family. And I go, unbelievable. We make assumptions about people. When we examine the interaction between Jesus and the Canaanite, we discover that Jesus exposed the lie that difference means distance. Secondly, Jesus expanded the love. He exposed the lie and then he expanded the love. It was as if Jesus had exposed, maybe even rehearsed the Canaanite's response. In spite of his callous demeanor, this this desperate mother persisted in reaching to Jesus and the, and the hope that embodied him, even when he blatantly insulted her, referring to her as a dog. This woman in, just responded and countered by saying in verse 27 of Matthew 15, Lord, yes, but even the dogs feed on crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then the gig was up. We read in verse 28 that Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. We breathe a collective sigh of relief to, just to feel Jesus' compassion operative again. Whew. 
And, and, and what better way to punch home the point of this real-life object lesson than for this contemptible foreigner to be commended as a woman of faith, someone so different from his Jewish audience to be commended of, as a woman of faith, something which was reserved for only some of the most godly. How did she get that way? Where did she find the kind of faith which gained the commendation of our Lord? What did she have that enabled her to persevere in the face of even rejection? What did she have? Well, essentially, she had love. She had love for a daughter lost and tormented amid the mysteries of the supernatural. She had love that was fueled by a desperation that pushed her just to relentlessly pursue, I don't care what anybody else thinks, I'll do what I have to. It seems that as much as Jesus was concerned to expose the kind of deceptive perspectives of his own followers which had them spiritually entrapped, making assumptions which they shouldn't have been making, even as much as that was happening as an object lesson for Jesus, ultimately it was the love of this mother for this suffering child that met the love of the master for that same suffering child, for that lost soul in despair, which changed the equation that day and which opened the door for a miracle to unfold. There was no way that Jesus was going to let the desperation of this woman, Canaanite or otherwise, go unanswered. And in the final analysis, it was Jesus' love for this woman's little girl that moved him to respond. Let's never be mistaken about it. It wasn't about trying to make himself famous. It wasn't about even trying to teach a lesson. It was because that little girl needed to be loved and he wanted to love her. And even though we may be tempted to superimpose all kinds of other agendas on this account, recognizing that it was indeed a perfect opportunity for Jesus to clarify his expanded and expansive kingdom agenda, there must be no confusion over the reality that at that moment, as Master met Mother, his entire focus was to expand the love of God by touching the life of one little girl. One person. The relationship between Jesus and the Canaanite was characterized by compassionate response. In so many ways, Jesus' encounter with this Canaanite became a pivotal occasion for him to clarify that immediate, active, freeing love, deliberate Engaging, courageous love, compassionate, responding love is always God's answer to desperation in this world. Always. Full stop. And that this freedom-giving kind of response, this freedom-living kind of response, this stepping-across-the-line kind of response, this going-the-distance kind of response paints a picture regarding the expanding, freeing dynamic of God's love. For the disciples, Jesus needed to expand, free up the scope of God's love, that it is for all nations, all peoples, of all shapes and sizes and differences, Sometimes I wonder if I really believe that. 
And if I do, am I reflecting that kind of freeing love? Am I? Are we acting that way? For the disciples, Jesus needed to expand the scope of God's love. For the woman, Jesus needed to expand or free up the nature of God's love. That it cannot be manipulated. It cannot be earned. It cannot be formulated. It can't even be begged for. It's a gift. Which is given as we draw near, as anyone draws near to the giver, it's offered unconditionally. It's all about grace. And, I, and again, I wonder if sometimes I, I keep that in focus. For the disciples, Jesus needed to expand, free up the scope of God's love. For the woman, Jesus needed to expand the nature of God's love, that it is gracious. But for the little girl, Jesus needed to expand the experience of God's love, that it would set her free. And his love sets people free to this day. He may be wanting to do that for you today. So, do you know that freedom? It comes by way of the incomprehensible love of God because in one of his earliest letters to the church, letters to the earliest church, Jesus, uh, Paul declares, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Being set free sums up the purpose of God's love and the power of God's love. And if you know this freedom, which epitomizes the love of God, then are you still captured by the wonder of the love of God? Does his love still surprise you? That God's love is for everyone. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, Christian and Muslim, long hair, short hair, redneck or otherwise. That God's love is uncontainable. It can't be put in a box. It can't be formulated. It's meant as much for those who do not understand it as much as those who do understand it. That God's love trumps all other human endeavors. As God's love transforms this world one distant soul at a time, one little child at a time, one desperate, begging soul at a time, God's love invariably, even unavoidably, breaks down all barriers, traverses all distances, expands all boundaries. His love always goes the distance. So how do we step forward with this? Matthew 15, 28 to 28, Jesus teaches us about sharing God's love by going the distance to overcome difference. Perhaps as we consider this scripture passage, it behooves any one of us to prayerfully consider one person or maybe a group of people whose difference from you or me whose difference might be creating distance from us maybe someone in the neighborhood at work at school in the family in the home and as we consider this prayerfully that we would ask God for forgiveness to take personal responsibility 
for the distance between us and that other. And then ask the Lord for wisdom to know how to traverse the distance between ourselves and that others. Then ask the Lord for courage to cross the line of difference between ourselves and that other. And then ask the Lord for love to do whatever is necessary to set that other person free. First, that we would pray. Second, that we would share, that we get accountable to this endeavor in our lives to share with a person that we trust maybe a small group that we're part of request prayerful encouragement and assistance for loving across those lines because i think that comprises some of the greatest miracles of our world is is having the ability to cross those lines i think it needs supernatural capacity and that comes by way of prayer with one another and then it's not only to pray and to share, but to act. To choose, to exercise confidence in the Holy Spirit of God within us. Take steps of faith with Jesus to cross lines of difference with others and then discover the joy and the freedom which obeying the Father's heart provides. Oh Lord God, I pray this day that you would inspire in me and in each one of us a clear vision of your love. And with that, the vision of your agenda to embrace this world in all of its torment and violence and struggle and confusion, to embrace this world with your supernatural transforming love like you did when you walked on this earth. We pray that we will be your hands and feet and lips and heart. We will embody you in how we stretch across the distances that come with difference. That we go the distance like you did to be with us that we go the distance to be exactly where you are. And as we do, we pray you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted high, and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In your precious name we pray. Amen.